You may know her as the leader of Cross Border Solutions Transfer Pricing University, where she educates hundreds of transfer pricing executives about the art and the science of related party transactions every week. You may have heard her on a call answering questions the kind only a chief economist could explain about countries' specific requirements. Maybe you've even seen her talking about cost-sharing arrangements or pillar one or two at a transfer pricing educational summit. Or maybe you've heard her right here on The Fiona Show, interviewing other renowned transfer pricing experts about, oh wow, where do we begin? The OECD Brazil project, the Altera case, red flags for auditors, Doc 6, and that's all just to name a few. But today, we're flipping things around. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song is here, but... Here's a twist. She's not interviewing anyone. In fact, she's the expert, and this time we're diving into her breadth of knowledge on transfer pricing in, drumroll please, Japan. True with a respectable transfer pricing tenure, <clears throat> a gentleman never reveals a lady's age, Mimi has produced many transfer pricing reports to the liking of many different tax authorities, but she has an intimate relationship with Japan because she led the transfer pricing department at MUFG Bank, the product of three bank mergers and the largest bank in the island country. Her lofty position gave her a front row seat as to how Japanese companies work and what the National Tax Agency, or NTA, expects from multinational companies. And we're going to tap into all of that today. But since Mimi is better than I am at making intercompany loans and intangible transactions sound exciting, we're going to let her tell you all about her interesting experience in just a minute. By the way, you can earn CPE credits from listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words in this episode. Email them, all of them, to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we'll reply with your CPE certificate. And before we get off to the races, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. It's been a long haul for Cameco and the Canadian Revenue Agency, given their infamous 12 years long transfer pricing dispute over a questionable corporate restructure and profit allocation derived from uranium sales between the Canadian based parent and subsidiaries in Sweden and Luxembourg. But finally, it's coming to an end. The nutshell, Cameco wins again in a June 26th judgment. Canada's Federal Court of Appeal upheld the Tax Court of Canada's September 2018 reversal of 483 million Canadian dollars in transfer pricing reassessments issued by the CRA, which could have led to a 4 billion Canadian dollar bill for Cameco. The CRA's issue was that Cameco's arrangement went against Canada's Income Tax Act, claiming that Cameco would have never engaged in such an arrangement with an unrelated party. The tax court determined, however, that the condition was more about whether parties operating at arm's length would be engaged in such an arrangement, not necessarily this specific taxpayer. And if you've ever wondered if the law is a fine line, well, there's your answer. The CRA has until September to appeal to Canada's Supreme Court, or it can quit while it's ahead, hint, hint. But for now, anyway, the score is two to one Cameco. Is it us, or does it seem like the ATO is always changing the rules? It's latest rethinking the local file starting in 2020, so it's actually the reporting for 2019. You must submit your local file to the ATO electronically in an XML file in an ATO-approved format. Though for Australia, the local file and master file make up one form. 
you can file the local file with or without the master, and you can submit electronically via a business portal, an online service, or a standard business reporting software. Decisions, decisions. But if you're thinking of submitting via paper or email, well, that just won't fly, mate. Countries around the world have helped many, many multinationals stay afloat during the coronavirus pandemic, but governments are expecting MEs to return the favors. In fact, a recent Financial Times article, It's a Matter of Fairness, Squeezing More Money from Multinationals, points out that governments will need to decrease their, quote, ballooning deficits and multinationals make an, quote, attractive target. Of course, digital taxation is expected to make an impact, but the real gains will come from MEs injecting tax dollars back into the economies that floated them through the tough times. As the OECD's Pascal Saint-Amans told the Financial Times, quote, countries which have bought out companies will expect that when they are back in profit, they will not put those profits in tax havens. Or will they? Huh. Something to think about. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. So, Mimi, just getting started here, how did you come to work at MUFG Union Bank and, and what kinds of things did you work on there? So it was interesting because when I went to MUFG Union Bank, it was one of those moments in my career where I thought, oh, you know what, I, I, I'd like to try to see what it's like on the industry side. Right? I, know, I, I had always been in transfer pricing consulting before. Um, and so when I saw this opportunity, I actually, I think I got a call from a recruiter as as you normally do, right? So I, I got a call from a recruiter and I thought, oh, this might be interesting. You know, it was it was a VP of transfer pricing at Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFG. By the way, that's what it was called when I joined. And by the time I left, it was MUFG Union Bank, the evolution of the organization. So when I first joined, it was very operational. I got to see the ins and outs of what the transfer pricing allocations looked like. And in fact, it was very different than what I had seen on the consulting side. We were actually responsible for the various, you know, management allocations and charge outs to different affiliates, um, as well as the cross-border transactions. So it it straddled the it straddled the worlds between managerial accounting, which is the allocation of costs between business units or between cost centers, as well as the allocation of costs on a cross-border basis. 
Uh, and that's where, you know, the international tax and transfer pricing implications came into play. And of course, you had all kinds of transfer pricing experience going even further into your career with Cross Border One. Um, but did you observe any differences about the work culture in a Japanese business versus an American one? On my background, I was actually born in Korea when I came when I was two. But, you know, my parents, my culture is like, you know, I understand Asian cultures very well. But I didn't understand how different and similar like the Japanese culture was to the Korean culture. It's, it's interesting. When I first joined the bank, and, and this is this is part of the onboarding process for every employee at the organization, they do a cultural sensitivity training. And they have you watch videos of what the Japanese culture is like and what the expectation sort of is. And so you see these videos and they teach you about how in school, the kids in elementary school are all sitting at their desks learning how to draw a picture of a cat, right? But the teacher doesn't say draw a picture of a cat and then everybody does, everybody draws a picture of a cat. In fact, it's, hey, draw a circle. Everybody draws a circle. Draw a triangle. Everybody draws a triangle. Right? Draw two circles for eyes. Everybody. You have to follow the process exactly. And this idea is that culturally in Japan, they're looking to establish an environment of harmony. They want it to be a harmonious environment. Uh, and so part of that is that everybody does things the same way. It's really fascinating. And so when, when I learned about that, I'm like, huh, even like from the beginning, right, this mindset is that everybody needs to conform, right, in or, and be harmonious as opposed to sort of this American work culture, which is more so uh, an environment of uh, innovation or, or, you know, propagating innovation and helping understand looking for diverse opinions and converging on that. But in Japan, it's a little bit different. It's an environment of consensus. It's an environment of harmony. Um, did you ever watch Fast and the Furious? <laughs> like uh, Tokyo very, Drift? Tokyo oh, Drift. I've, uh, I didn't get that far into the series, but like back in middle school, oh man, I first saw the first few. So I'm roughly familiar with the series. <laughs> so the, the, in Tokyo Drift, and it's like one of my favorite Fast and Furious movies. Uh, but there's it, it, there's this one line that the Japanese guy says to the American guy, and he he basically says like, "The nail that sticks out must get hammered," right? Right, right. <laughs> and, and I think about that every time when I think about the Japanese culture. It's like they want to hammer in the nail that sticks out, so don't stick out. Like right, so. right. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the difference for innovation and creativity between the work cultures. Following along that 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 story I was just telling you and, and about the movie setting, I, I think the idea in a lot of ways, and not to paint the picture of the Japanese culture in a negative light, that's not my intention at all, but, uh, you know, and it's this sort of perspective, right? But the creativity is not encouraged. It's interesting how that is. It's, it's more process it's encouraged, you know, understanding the process and following processes that's, that's really encouraged. Right. Or, or we might say creativity for creativity's sake, isn't the paramount so much right. as what you were saying before about harmony. Creativity will be found if, if everybody works in harmony and together to produce something collectively. 
Exactly. That's right. It could produce a creativity is a collective uh, endeavor, right? So it's not an individual endeavor. Yes, yes. And for somebody who who spends a good chunk of their day making podcasts almost entirely by themselves, uh, yeah, that's a mind-expanding prospect. But um, what value did the in-house experience add to your career as an economist and consultant today? Oh, I think it was invaluable. I, I loved the experience. I loved to see the inner workings of the the bank and the and the Japanese culture. I mean, I think it was both a, a personally satisfying experience as well as professionally, right? Because, you know, looking at things from the industry perspective, there there's two aspects of this. I sort of went the extreme, right? I worked in an environment where culturally things were completely like 180 degrees from what I had experienced before, right? And then you know, on the industry side versus the consulting side, there was much more focused, much more focused on processes and internal controls, and in it, and as a banking environment, so there was a lot more rigidity in terms of what needed to happen. And like I said, it was 180 degree departure from what I had experienced in the past, which was this idea of like being much more dynamic or being innovative. I would say as a consultant, sometimes you're in reactionary mode, right? As opposed to now I'm all of a sudden in this long-term planning mode, mm. you know, sort of like being in a, you know, if we're talking about Fast and Furious, right? Being in a race car versus being sure. in a very large naval ship that you're trying to turn right. and move. So everybody has to work together. It's, it's, it's very different versus, you know, driving, driving a, a fancy sports car, you know, down the lane. But it's helped me. I think having both perspectives has given me more balance in my professional career and understanding what those inner processes are and what the challenges that people on the industry side face has been super important. And then I think it has given me much a more of a balanced perspective, right? I, I, I wouldn't trade it in for the world. That's for right, sure. Right. Especially it, it has to be able to help things on a macro cosmic level to know how things are incrementally uh, on a microscopic microcosmic basis, but honing in our focus on Japan as a transfer pricing jurisdiction. They're a member of the OECD. What are Japan's documentation requirements? So Japan, they've always had sort of this de facto transfer pricing documentation requirement since I want to say it goes back to like 2008 or nine. I, I don't know exactly the specifics, but, you know, transfer pricing before then was not necessarily as big of a deal. I think culturally, once again, it goes back to the culture. It's, it's tax obligations are a social responsibility, right? And so transfer pricing and meeting the requirements was not as, as problematic because the expectation from the Japanese tax authority is that all companies operating in Japan are going to be good corporate tax paying citizens. Anyways, with that said though, documentation requirements clearly have evolved over the years. And in fact, right now, they, they do require a master file, a local file, and CBC reporting, uh, country by country reporting. And they've, they've adopted that OECD framework 
and three-tiered approach to documentation and then applied certain thresholds to that, right? Right. And anything special about those thresholds? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think the master file is applicable for companies with global consolidated sales of more than $100 billion Japanese yen, right? And so when you think about the yen to US dollar conversion, if, if you, you know, for, for our listeners here, you just take off two zeros, right? So, <laughs> so, and the master file, you have to submit it within the, the year of the fiscal year end of the parent company, right? So for the local file requirements, basically, if you have transactions in more than 5 billion Japanese yen, then that requires uh, documentation to be prepared so that you have to be able to justify exactly, you know, the intercompany or the transfer pricing policies and that the policy and that the actual amounts were transferred in accordance with the arm's length principle, right? So... Then when it comes to intangibles, you have to prepare the documentation if you're talking about intangible transactions of more than 300 million Japanese yen. So again, that's, that's you know, the intercompany transaction amount with a, a single counterparty. But basically, if you have anything above that amount, you have to prepare documentation. And then once again, for country by country reporting, it follows the same threshold as the master file, which is global consolidated revenue for the ultimate parent more than 100 billion Japanese yen. Right, right. And before we get too much farther, let me interrupt with our first CPE code word. That CPE code word is sushi, as in it's hard to talk about Japan without thinking about sushi. Everybody knew that was coming. Backing up into documentation again, does documentation have to be prepared annually in Japan? Yes, it actually does. You know, like I said, they've they've had a de facto documentation requirement. What that really means is that they've had they 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 say yes, you should have documentation, and they didn't explicitly say it needed to be prepared by a certain date historically before 2017, I should say. But they basically said, hey, when we come and audit you, and if we ask for the documentation, you need to have it ready within like you know a week or two, which in fact, means, okay, well, you must have your documentation prepared by the time of the filing because they could literally ask you for that documentation at any point in time and they expect you to have it, right? Which means you need to have your documentation prepared contemporaneously. Now, officially, <laughs> for, for companies with fiscal year starting April 1st, 2017, they've explicitly come out with this requirement that you have to have um, your transfer pricing local file prepared contemporaneously. So now it, it's more official. Right. And, and what about language requirements? They accept documentation and reports that are prepared in English, right? Um, so it, not everything has to be in Japanese. However, the tax examiner does have the right to request a translation of all of the documentation if it is produced in English. So, you know, just to be wary about that. But, you know, in my experience with working with the NTA, uh, many of the Japanese auditors are, are very well versed in English. I mean, I think in Japan, it is standard that everybody takes English language beginning in elementary school. So, right. And has Japan adopted BEPS Action 13? 
They they have, and as an OECD member country, and it's not surprising, right? So they've they've taken into account, you know, the BEPS Action 13, the the three tiered approach to documentation. They've made it mandatory to have a master file and a country by country report. They've also made it mandatory to have contemporaneous documentation for local regulations. I think the the main issue here is that they've aligned their documentation requirements with the OECD, but keep in mind that, you know, even prior to the, the BEPS action plan, they've, they've had guidance, if you will, that transfer pricing documentation should, should be prepared, right? So we've, we've talked about that briefly, this whole de facto documentation requirement, even in, in a pre-BEPS environment. So what are the biggest differences between Japan's regulations and the OECD's template? From an information perspective, right? Most of that information and most of the requirements are very similar. And like I said, Japan, you know, transfer pricing documentation requirements, it's not really anything new per se, but now they've they've aligned it to this construct of the master file, the local file, and the country by country reporting. Um, but you know, just just to keep in mind, I think from a an analysis perspective, um, Japan is is more aligned toward the idea of okay, you've got to have local comparables, for example, right? Um, they're also more in line with this idea of of being able to bifurcate these intercompany transactions into the smallest components, right? And so, looking for more segmentation of the various types of transfer pricing information and analyze those on an individual case-by-case basis. But generally speaking, I think, you know, what they're looking for is not dramatically different from the OECD guidelines. But remember, always remember, (laughs) OECD guidelines are merely guidelines. And, And basically, you know, the NTA has adopted the majority of it, but then they've layered on their own sort of country specific requirements. Right. So. Right. And does BEPS Action 13 documentation protect you from penalties? I would sort of think about that in a, in a slightly different way, Matt. I would think about it as does meeting Japanese documentation requirements, right, protect you from penalties. Um, and the answer is, is yes. I, well, I think on a high level, it's yes, because there is a penalty if you don't file the master file and the country by country reporting, there's a monetary penalty. Now, there's no explicit monetary penalty for not preparing contemporaneous local file documentation. But here's the catch. You know, just because there's no monetary penalty does not mean that you're not at risk. And what's the implication of not preparing it? Well, the problem is the NTA historically has been notorious. You can ask anybody for having secret comparables, right? And so, and, and, and they've come out explicitly to talk about the fact that they are, you know, they're not going to use secret comparables anymore. But in fact, they have a specific provision that basically says if you don't have contemporaneous documentation, well, we're going to presume what your transfer pricing should be. And we're going to do whatever, look at whatever data we have. And maybe that includes secret comparables. Uh, and then we're going to assess you. Basically, it's almost like they're already coming from the position of assuming that the multinational taxpayer being audited is not operating at arm's length, and therefore they're going to apply a presumptive tax. And then that's 
the real issue. It's the potential adjustment or an, an assumption that the multinational is not operating at arm's length, which really puts a company at risk, uh, you know, without their documentation, right? So, Right. And what are Japan's country-specific requirements? So, you know, in a post-BEPS environment and in a pre-BEPS environment, there are a couple of different things to be considered. Japan has always had a, a Schedule 17 for that that has to be attached to the regular tax return when you have cross-border transaction. And then in a post-BEPS environment, they, they actually applied a, another form, which was referred to as the, the NUPI. <laughs> and then the NUPI form is, the notification for ultimate parent entity. And so that's an additional sort of uh, filing requirement, if you will, that is, is currently in place. And what information does it include? The 17-4 schedule, which needs to be attached to your regular tax return, you have to have the name of the foreign parties that you are interacting with, the addresses, the description of that foreign party, the number of employees, the legal ownership, the amount of capital, the different fiscal years. There's a lot of components of information, right? And all of this information is actually the information, you know, you might find in your standard sort of 5471 if you look at it from the U.S. perspective, or even some of this information which is applicable to the country-by-country reporting, right, revenue, um, at legal entity ownership, you know, number of employees, but you also need to provide, you know, amount of intercompany transactions, the transaction types and whether an APA exists. So there's, there's a lot of overlap in the type of information that needs to be provided between the specific forms that need to be attached to the tax return, country by country reporting, and the master file and even the transfer pricing local file documentation, right? So there's all of this information actually, you know, needs to be considered. You have to be really careful that there's consistency in the information because I will tell you the NTA, they are so detail oriented. Right. It's amazing. And let me interrupt with our second CPE code word. The word is island, as in Japan is an island country. Keeping it easy. Does Japan have a preference when it comes to transfer pricing methodology? So historically speaking, Japan, I think, had taken a position similar to a lot of countries, which is which is basically that direct prices were a better indication of transfer prices, right? The cup method or transaction-based analyses. So the idea was, okay, we have a preference for being able to look at and and for you, Mr. and Mrs. Taxpayer, to apply a transaction-based analysis, a cup of resale price or cost plus, whenever that's possible. However, you know, I think every more and more countries have have come to the realization that, in fact, is perhaps you know the most reliable method in in many situations, especially because the standards of comparability to apply the transaction-based methods are are so rigid. So. Since 2011, I believe, Japan has been leaning more towards this idea that the most appropriate method should be applied from a transfer pricing perspective. And in fact, it's not really as strict of a hierarchy as it might have been historically. So, And you can see that in some of the APA statistics as well, because you know, an advanced pricing agreement or bilateral where the U.S. versus Japan might be negotiating, which, which I also 
had the lovely experience of going through, <laughs> you will see that statistically speaking, a lot of the approved APAs end up being you know, applying a profit-based analysis approach, right? So. Right. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties and adjustments and our technology is available for one flat fee a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant again apologies big four stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions ai driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp if i might ask a question that might come from one of our tpu signees since 2011 that rule that japan has been in favor of the most appropriate method is there any difference between that policy and just having a, a best method rule well the most appropriate method and the best method rule is pretty much the same concept, right? It, it, it's the same concept in that a company analyzing the intercompany transactions and, and the transfer pricing framework and policy just needs to make sure that whatever methods that they're applying most accurately depicts the application of the arm's length principle, right? It, it most accurately helps to justify that that intercompany transaction was conducted at arm's length or as if the two related parties were unrelated. And in 2019, Japan introduced tax reform with changes to its transfer pricing regulations, which went into effect in April. What were those changes? So basically, Japan adopted their or changed their regulations, I should say. It, they changed their regulations to be more in line with the OECD guidelines. And in fact, you know, one of the major changes is the definition of what's considered an intangible asset. Having an alignment of that definition and understanding and adopting the OECD's idea of what constitutes an intangible, I think, is is in a step in the right direction, right, to create more global consistency in, with respect to the arm's length principle and the application of the transfer pricing regulations as defined in the OECD guidelines, right? The other aspects of the changes and, and how, you know, the, the changes in the Japanese tax environment is also the fact that they are now allowing the use of a, a discounted cash flow method to determine transfer pricing, arm's length pricing with respect to intangibles, right? And so this is actually something that has been challenged, I would say, in the U.S., tax environment historically but I you know when it comes to the valuation of IP the discount cash flow method has always been that is applicable right and so now it, there's more of a formal adoption of it 
uh, there's more of a formal adoption of it in the transfer pricing space. And then two other smaller parts here, which is the NTA essentially extended its statute of limitations. Now the statute of limitations for transfer pricing is essentially seven years. And then the use of the interquartile range, which is uh, the justification of prices, which you know, we've talked about the differences between the, the economic analysis requirements on a country-by-country country basis. And in Japan now, they are really accepting the use of the interquartile range, which is 25th percentile to the 70th percentile of the third-party comparable data to the extent that you're applying a profit-based analysis, right? That can be used to justify where you have to apply a, a profit-based analysis to justify the transfer prices when you are looking at the uh, analysis for, for from a transfer pricing perspective. I'm noticing the discounted cash flow method isn't among the five main methods. What sets that apart? Well, it's not a main method for transfer pricing purposes because it's more so specifically related to intangible property, right? It's more so situated to analyze perhaps the transfer of intangible property, which is more so a one-off event as opposed to a regularly occurring intercompany transaction. So in that way, there's guidance now to say, okay, to the extent that you're transferring IP between one organization or another, this is an acceptable method or approach for that type of valuation for transfer pricing purposes. But it's not a main method to analyze arm's length pricing uh, for regular transactions between two related parties. And just to interrupt very quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, does Japan require local benchmarks? Yes, if the tested party is in Japan, there is a requirement for Japanese comparables, and it's important to note that non-Japanese comparables are often rejected by Japanese tax authorities because of market differences. They're quite serious about this kind of thing. Does Japan require a single-year or multi-year analysis? So Japan uh, actually when they are applying an adjustment or an, an assessment, they're going to look at the single year. But typically when you thought, when looking at comparable data, looking at it across multiple years is, is pretty common. Looking at it across three years is pretty common, especially for purposes of the actual documentation. The way you can think about it is that they're going to look at the current year results against the multi-year averages. And so that's, you know, if you're, current year result doesn't fall within the multi-year average range, then you could be subject to an assessment. So some one of those details that you have to pay attention to when you are thinking about the arm's length pricing for Japanese transfer pricing purposes, right? It's if they're going to look at each individual year relative to a multi-year range. I believe you've mentioned the rather lengthy statute of limitations on transfer pricing assessments in Japan a couple of times so far, but that is uh, very unique, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say it was unique, Matt, <laughs> because the statute of limitations being around seven years long is pretty standard, I would say. There are jurisdictions that have a longer statute of limitations than Japan, 
But the U.S., I believe, the statute of limitations is seven years. Japan is now seven years. And in many other jurisdictions, it's either seven years or even greater. So really middle so. of the pack. I, I just hadn't heard it, uh, you know, in, with regard to so many other facets uh, of a jurisdiction's transfer pricing. But uh, how likely is a transfer pricing audit in Japan, would you say? The, the number of audits in Japan has definitely increased. The NTA is... It's looking for opportunities to shore up the budget deficits, right? Multinationals are also figuring out how to ensure that they, they're sort of maximizing their profitability as well. So in the current environment, it's sort of this, everybody is looking better their situation, if you will. And then that's not, that's no different with, with the NTA. And in fact, I do think that the whole premise of the BEPS Action 13 and the whole premise of BEPS Action 13 was to educate the various tax authorities, right? And in that process of education, it's how do they make better assessments? How can they better target companies? They are now in this moment of realization where they understand that companies are, not all companies are good corporate taxpaying citizens, meaning they're going to be looking at company first, right? And then identify and figure out exactly how can their transfer pricing frameworks be put into place to optimize and their transfer price. How can they optimize their transfer price to minimize their tax liability? This is why I think Japan has ultimately become a much more risky environment where where audits are audits are somewhat inevitable, right? Right. Right. And just to interrupt very quickly to ask Fiona, Fiona, is it likely that methodology will be challenged? Yes, Matt, it is likely that during a transfer pricing audit, the transfer pricing methodology will be challenged. And then it's extremely likely that the National Tax Agency will issue an adjustment. Not what you wanted to hear, right? Very true, Fiona. What industries is the National Tax Agency targeting in terms of transfer pricing audits? Uh, so now that they have country by country reporting, <laughs> right, and as a requirement, they have a lot more visibility into data. And so if you if you think about that, the Japanese entities are losing money. Clearly, that's something where they're going to look into, right? If foreign offices are making lots of money, that that could be an opportunity for them to look into as well. When companies engage in changes to their business structuring, where you know, perhaps there's there's shifting of responsibilities and functions from one jurisdiction to the another one. That's going to create some tension because then all of a sudden, you know, the Japanese entity might be or the Japanese tax authority, the NTA might be looking at that as, oh my gosh, they're trying to shift profit, right? Especially in cases where now that they have visibility into the countries, if you in your CBC reports are showing high level of earnings in low tax jurisdictions that is uh, that is that is clearly an area that where they're going to want to look into right the idea of tax planning in japan and you know this is in my own experience when at the bank i've said this before it felt like it was a dirty word right like nobody wanted to talk about tax planning and in fact it was like no that just that's something wrong with tax planning. And, and that's not true at all, right? And the idea of tax planning is that as a tax director of a multinational company, you want to have an understanding of what the global tax footprint looks like. You don't want to have to 
pay excessive amounts of tax. You want to do what's in the best interest of the company. And the tax rules in the current environment were structured such that there were tax arbitrage activities. And so, yes, companies engaged in, in tax planning activities. But was that wrong? Not necessarily because the rules are what they are, right? <laughs> and and I think the OECD BEPS action plan ultimately has highlighted the challenges in the current environment that these rules were structured such that they had these loopholes that taxpayers were taking advantage of. And now they're saying, okay, we got to close those loopholes. But in order to do that, we all have to work together first and foremost. And then they're also putting the onus on the taxpayer to, to say, you know, the spirit of the arm's length principle should be upheld. And, you know, some companies, I think, were pushing the envelope a little bit, right, in terms of tax loopholes and, and opportunities, you know, migrating IP to low tax jurisdictions just for the sake of not having to, uh, you know, pay an exorbitant amount of tax, right? Hopefully, Right now, the NTA is looking at that and saying, the NTA is looking at that and saying today, if you are upholding the spirit of the arms length principle, we're going to be able to see that and flush that out in the information that you're providing to us. If we think that you are, in fact, engaging in aggressive tax planning strategies and not taking into account the spirit of the arms length principle, then we're going to audit you, right? And then we're going to impose adjustments. All of that is going to be more difficult for multinationals to combat if, in fact, they don't have any documentation to uphold their position, even if, in fact, the reality is that they they are absolutely trying to follow the spirit of the arms length principle and not taking advantage of tax arbitrage opportunities. They have to have the documentation to prove that, right, and, they, and, and for that to be upheld. Maybe a, a good way to summarize this is what, Previously and up until this point or up until recently has been a gray area is becoming increasingly black and white, uh, a tug of war, so to speak, between normal behaviors when it comes to tax planning by multinationals and the tax authority. That's in one way natural to the entire dynamic between multinationals and tax authorities, but also uh, is probably going to take on new dimensions with COVID and more recent events, all of 2020, so to speak. <laughs> gestures wildly at everything right <laughs> that's right Matthew <laughs> and what do you find challenging about intercompany transactions with businesses in Japan this is actually a good question because I, I and I could answer it I think the answer is similar regardless of whether or not I was you know thinking about it from the perspective of working at a Japanese company, being in the U.S. office, or even as a consultant, because I think the biggest challenge is that getting data out of Japan, even as a, a person who worked within the U.S. entity of the Japanese multinational, uh, getting information out of Japan, there's always a very, there, there's always sort of this invisible fence, if you will, where everyone is considered a little bit of an outsider, right? And there was a lot of hesitancy about sharing information and in outside of Japan uh, with the, you know, subsidiaries of the J Japanese entity. And so getting data out of Japan or getting information, you have to justify exactly what that's being used for, why you need it, like everything is on an, a need-to-know basis. 
So I think that's the biggest challenge about <laughs> the various intercompany transactions and dealing with a, a Japanese entity or Japanese parent company, providing a certain level of ed education to explain why certain types of data and information are necessary, right? Because they want to keep it as close knit as possible. They want to keep that data as secure as possible. As we were mentioning before, COVID-19 stands to affect many Japanese businesses and sectors. What can MEs do proactively to minimize that impact? So I, I've said this time and time again, but it, you know, looking at the intercompany contracts is, is something that companies can do proactively because I'm sure there many companies are looking at their third-party vendor contracts or even their third-party customer contracts proactively in light of what's happening with the global pandemic. Intercompany contracts should also be evaluated. Why? Because, well, what's the spirit of the arm's length principle? Your related parties should be treated as if they were unrelated parties. So if you're evaluating your third-party vendor contracts, then you should probably be really evaluating your intercompany vendor contracts, right? Your intercompany service contracts and things of that nature. So reviewing those intercompany contracts becomes really important. I also think looking at the, the transfer pricing policy and the benchmarks that are supporting the policy it becomes really important because in the post-pandemic environment, we would expect to see a drop in profitability, right? Because this is affecting everybody. This is affecting all industries. This is affecting every country out there. Understanding or proactively anticipating what the profitability or how profitability is going to be impacted in a variety of different industries, I think becomes much more important to be able to assess how you want to manage it internally as a multinational and then and then last but not least is you know from a documentation perspective you always want to proactively understand exactly what's happening today right and document it because the documentation is going to be really important if and when it comes time to be audited or even internally right as a business as an organization the people who understood what was happening to the business at the time of occurrence, especially you know on an intercompany basis, may not be there six months from now, may not be there a year from now, may definitely not be there by the time you're getting audited. And so having that proactive documentation just becomes that much more important, especially if you are going to be in a situation where your company is incurring losses or profitability is going to go down, right? And so to be able to mitigate the risk of an adjustment under audit by being able to explain the situation and the current market conditions is going to become, it is very important, I should say. Right, right. I also think with all things COVID and working from home, everyone is forced, whether you're multinational or, um, you know, or your waiting tables, everybody is forced to kind of reckon with their closets right now and their clutter and all of those things that need to be cleaned up. And I feel like COVID is this almost cosmic opportunity for everybody to clean out the closet, or it has been for me. So if I can share that with multinationals and, and uh, tax professionals out there. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. And let me interrupt with our third CPE code word. The word is kimono, as in these traditional robes are worn for special ceremonies and occasions in Japan. Again, that word is kimono. Well, does she deliver or what? Thanks for another great discussion, Mimi. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show. And now that we're here, I kind of feel like we don't put Mimi in the hot seat enough. Mimi, you know how we operate. We're throwing a rapid fire round of questions your way. Your job is to answer off the cuff. No thinking. You do enough around here. Uh, you do enough of that around here. Anyway, are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> Here we go. That was question one. Question two, what do you think is the most important skill for a transfer pricing executive to have in 2020? I actually think right now it's the thirst for knowledge. I actually do think that the transfer pricing executives and professionals that have the greatest thirst for knowledge and, and continuously want to improve and learn, have, have like this continuous learning mindset. Those are the people who are going to thrive and, and survive given the changes in the current regulatory environment and, and the evolving changes. How would you describe your management style? Oh boy, uh, I would <laughs> I would ask my direct reports. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think it's, it's one of those situations where I try to be as hands off as possible, to be honest. I, I, I like to trust, but then, you know, I, I'd like for also, they need to earn my trust, right? So in the beginning, it's there's an educational process so that everybody learns from one another in terms of what the expectations are. And as long as they continuously meet those expectations, then I can feel confident that they're they're meeting the desired results right so right and they're being welcomed into the culture of the organization through you mm -hmm. and what's the difference between a good client and a great client ah. feel free to name names <laughs> Kidding. Well, i think a, a good client is a client who's very responsive provides data quickly uh and and you know we 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 can deliver the reports in accordance with their expectations because they're also very responsive back to us, right? A great client is a client, I think, who works with us and collaborates with us. And I think the difference is someone who just says yes, no to every question versus someone who also is not afraid to work and challenge us and so we can ultimately get to the best result possible for everybody and someone who also wants to understand exactly what we did and and how it relates to their organization i think that i think that makes the difference between a good and a great client and what has been a surprising upside or a silver lining of the covid19 stay at home orders for you 
Oh, I think it's, you know, the, the FaceTime with my family. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I, I do like the fact that I can see them every night for dinner and, you know, even uh, as much as I'm working and I'm on the phone a lot, uh, I try to, you know, have lunch with them if possible. Sometimes they eat too early for me, but you know, I, I think <laughs> all of these meal times together, all this space time together, um, it just, it's, it's been great to be able to, to see them, um, you know, much more frequently than, than during the normal culture of the year. So, so if you could deliver one message to all multinational companies about transfer pricing, what would that message be? I think my message is don't, don't settle. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, I, is, you know, when we think about the transfer pricing environment today, everything is continuously evolving, right? And so don't settle for just getting a benchmark study done. Don't settle for getting a, a generic study done because all of that information may not even provide you with what you need at the end of the day. And it's, it may not even be worth the paper it's written on, to be honest. Like, don't settle for, for sort of second-rate documentation if you're looking, if you're looking at opportunities to to make sure that you're being compliant, you know you've got to you've got to go all the way or or don't do it at all, right? Because in the current environment, you know, having documentation that is not good enough is almost as is almost the same thing as not having documentation at all, right? So it's like. Go big or go home. Right. So. <laughs> and you're still putting a lot of hours into the substandard documentation yeah, in a lot of cases. Right. Always fun to catch up with you, Mimi. Thank you so much again for making the time to talk with us about transfer pricing today. And as for you listeners, we've still got much more to say, so don't miss it. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can eavesdrop on our transfer pricing conversations. Sign up for our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, and we'll give you the lowdown on transfer pricing news in minutes. I'm Matthew DeMello, and I host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our fabulous scripts. And that's all we've got for you today, so what do you say? Same time, same place next week. We will catch you then. We'll be right back.